1: Uh, We recorded something that landed poorly with a DM who is a member of uh, a Mexican indigenous group, and we got called out. We're going to put that in at the end here because I want to talk about how we screwed up and things that we should avoid in our games. We changed that line in the AP in the episode itself so that hopefully it's not harmful. We're going to talk a little bit at the end about how we had screwed up, what the original audio was, if you want to hear that. It's there at the end. If you don't want to hear it, if it's something that affected you personally and you don't need to hear it regurgitated, listen to the end of the AP, kill the episode.
2: My name is Aram. I'm the writer and producer of the actual play Dungeon & Dragons podcast, God's Fall. My name's Dylan. My pronouns are he, him, and I'm a physicist from Canada. Welcome to Kill Kill Every every monster. Monster. This time on Kill Every Monster, we are featuring the Quaddle.
1: The Monster Manual describes Quaddle as benevolent serpentine beings of great intellect and insight. Their brilliantly colored wings and gentle manner speak to their celestial origins.
2: Quaddles were created as guardians and caretakers by a benevolent god not worshiped since the dawn of time and which is forgotten now by all but the Coatl themselves. Most of the divine mandates given to these beings are long since fulfilled or failed. However, a number of koatals still watch over ancient power, await fulfillment of prophecy, or safeguard the heirs of creatures they once guided and protected. Regardless of a Coatl's task, it prefers to remain hidden, revealing itself only as a last resort. We are joined by Carlos Cisco. Carlos, whose pronouns are he him, is a newly minted narrative designer with work on the DMs Guild, hashtag iHunt, and in MCDM's Arcadia. Or it feels new because time got real elastic during those early days of the pandemic. His primary craft is television writing, but unlike design work, his ascent was not quite so propulsive, spending the last decade clawing his way up the ladder to find himself recently as a writer on Star Trek Discovery. In the immortal and often malign words of the Enterprise theme song, it's been a long road getting there from here. It can be most easily found on Twitter at Carlos underscore Cisco. Welcome to the show, Carlos. Happy to be here.
1: I'm going to point out that we are going to need this one to be two pronged, Carlos. What is a coaddle,
3: both to you and just like in general for the audience? Base thing, when you're looking at them, they're these uh, uh, sort of large wing snakes. You know, the quaddle was always an interesting thing to me because the the art in it is so goofy in, uh, in the AD&D Monster Manual and it's described as this like beautiful celestial thing and i was always like what is th- what is this like weird little like hairy wing snake but it was actually the first thing that sort of led me into um like mesoamerican uh, mythology and stuff like that because like i was you know as a kid uh, uh like i feel like most gays Um, really into Greek and Egyptian mythology. And, you know, this was actually the first window into sort of, you know, I'm, I'm uh, Mexican American. And so this was like the first window into uh, a mythology that was not just sort of, uh, you know, Western European. It kind of snowballed from there because like I started recognizing more, more things pulling from it. Like I remember in Final Fantasy 7, there was the Quetzalcoatl summon and stuff. And so that sort of, you know, kind of r- reminded me, but it's it's kind of a weird thing because like I've never used one in a game ever. You know, I think we like with most celestial creatures that they're kind of hard to use outside of some sort of like guide and then it's like what, you know, the stat block isn't that useful in that sense, because then I can sort of use it however I need to, you know, as far as a lot of uh, D&D cultural appropriation goes, it's fairly benign.
2: Yeah, it's really benign cuz there's nothing there. Mm-hmm.
3: Y- yeah, but it's also it's also presented even in like the the mythologies that, you know, you dip into the forgotten realms or the Eberron mythology and they're still sort of used in a similar way to how they were known in in Aztec mythology as sort of these like creators D&D definitely has its its share of very offensive uh cultural appropriation or you know really misogynistic tropes but like for this one to me it doesn't raise my hackles in the way that like I look at other
2: things and be like that's bad you guys in essence it's a big pretty winged snake who's really nice yeah There's all these parts where it's like, it thinks forever and has these long drawn out plans, but if an adventurer can't plant some corn, it's gonna pop out of the jungle and be like, here, let me help you, right? Does kind of imply that they like take a long time to get things done. I'm not so sure it takes a long time for the task. I think they're all ADHD and they're just, any distraction pulls them off track for like a year, two years and finally they get back on
3: when you have like a you know multi-thousand year worldview taking a, a couple weeks out to help that peasant ain't no thing
1: on the topic of time scales i want to call out what i think is the weirdest choice they made in the 5e uh entry which is calling out a celestial being's reproductive habits the gem egg doesn't necessarily bother me so much as the fact that like it's a celestial being. Why, why did you have to specifically call out? Because they can steal the egg. Because it gave you something to steal. So for the benefit of the listeners, it calls out that they all know, give or take 100 years, that they're going to die. They get basically the little precog flash of like, oh, I'm on my way out. And when they realize they're going to die, there's a conservation of quaddle. So they have to find another one, <laughs> make their little gem egg.
2: This is an example of the worst possible kind of parent. The parent who's gone through their life and at the last minute is like, oh, I've left things undone, so I'm going to have a child and then push all of my bullshit onto them. Okay, so why hasn't there been a published adventure
3: specifically focused on getting this coaddle laid? Like, honestly, (laughs) like that...
2: If we don't get the quaddle laid, we can't hold back the seal.
3: Yeah, like you have to exactly like this, this, this quaddle <laughs> has like this most important task of like, you know, whatever it's doing is, is the key to keeping the, you know, the abyss from just pouring into the material plane. And if you don't get this coaddle to fuck,
2: <laughs> it's over. It's over. That should have been the adventure. Just me and the coaddle at a bar, <laughs> <laughs> trying to find someone to fertilize her egg.
3: And then my next question is just looking at the, just sort of the wording of this is it doesn't say anything about, um, like, you know, sex in terms of, um, and I, I mean that in like biological sex. So like,
2: so could it, could it be any two coattles? Does it have to be a male and a female coattle? Oh, I would say no, because yeah, you're right. There's no sex. There's just a sharing of magical energy. I don't see why two male coattles couldn't make a little gem egg. I don't see why they have gender.
1: They're snakes. I know that snakes technically have sex and all that stuff, but they're they're flying wizard snakes. I don't think they care.
2: You mentioned the art in uh, like third edition; it was weird. The art in fifth edition is fine. At least it's rainbow. Like it's not even a rainbow in fifth edition. Well, you know,
3: but I was looking. I was looking at it, and I was like, I kind of dig this because like. Their their uh their wings are kind of in the color of a Mexican flag. Oh,
2: I didn't even think about
3: that. And I was like, oh, that's kind of cool. Like that the, the, is I mean, cool. you know, it's real subtle, but uh but I was like, okay, that's yeah. But they yeah, the the art is um, I think, you know, I, I like a lot of the 5e art, but it's sort of, you know, it's a wing snake.
2: It's like they tried to make it look a little tough. And I don't think that's the vibe you want to go for. Like they should feel ethereal, they should feel like rainbow tissue, right? But are incredibly strong when it comes down to it. I mean, a strength of 16 is not small. I always feel like they're supposed to be a lot
3: bigger than they are. Yeah. Like, like a, as a medium creature, they just, they just seem, I don't know. I mean, maybe I just haven't seen enough really large snakes because I feel like a medium snake would actually be quite intimidating. To me, at least, when I think of size categories, I think about the space that it
1: occupies, not necessarily its actual dimensions a medium creature might be six feet tall. I don't think we're talking about a six foot snake. We're talking about a snake that occupies the space that a six foot tall man would. So like it's coiled onto itself. It's got its fucking big ass wing spread out. I'm willing to bet that this is maybe like a 25 foot snake. Okay, that's terrifying. It's just that like, if you put it on the ground and it wasn't using its wings, it's coiled up, it's standing like, it's yeah, oh, that's guy size.
2: That's not that scary. And then it takes off and you're like, oh, that will,
1: <laughs> okay.
2: And they are very long and very feathery. So that does fit in with the design. Like it could shrink down to a very small size. Snakes are good at that. The pride with which you said that. <laughs> I love that it's a good snake. You don't get good snakes. Like there is nowhere in typical, you know, uh, Western mythology where there is a "Hi, I'm here to help you. I'm the nice snake." It doesn't happen. So this is fantastic.
3: It is strange too. Well, not strange, but when you think about it, it's like when you see snakes. Like I think, like the 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 general sort of instinctual thing is, you know, run away. So I think that's that's probably why.
2: The Witcher was talking about how like no one does insect monsters, right? There's not a lot of insect monsters, but but there are in certain cultures and when you take them literally, Jesus Christ, a giant insect is just terrifying. They're just there there's there's nothing to connect with.
3: Yeah. When you see like close-up pictures of beetles and their mandibles, you're like, No, no, no. That if that was giant, no. I mean, like, that that sequence in uh, Honey I Shrunk the Kids is a horror movie. <laughs> horrifying,
2: absolutely horrifying. Yes.
3: I don't care if they become friends with that ant; it's terrible.
2: Even with a snake, there's still like it's got kind of like a human-ish face, like you can relate to that. There's something to connect with once you get over the initial terror of it being a twenty-foot-five-winged snake.
1: Carlos. Is the coaddle a monster?
3: Well, I mean, when we just talked about, you know, the snake actually being like, you know, 15 to 25 foot long, by the definition of a large, ugly, frightening thing, if I saw a big fucking rainbow wing snake, I'd certainly nope out in the other direction. But I think when you're looking at sort of the totality of what these beings are, that's sort of an unconcise way of just saying no. End of the day, Koala
1: falls into a category uh, that I'm just, just starting to call NPC monsters.
2: They are story monsters. They yeah. are there to generate story, not conflict.
1: Here's the thing that you give to your players. If you ever need something to toss out a real quick cure wounds, give them a quest. Well, oh, they're quest
2: givers, 100%.
1: They're basically so ancient that most of the divine mandates given to these beings are long since fulfilled or failed. I always view any sort of celestial or fiend creature as sort of a really clever robot like they're manifestations of just elemental energy right like an angel isn't a creature it's good
2: walking around same with the devil it's a celestial construct basically
1: the idea of coaddle wandering around with like impossible to fulfill or expired rules i love it i think that's fantastic
3: I think, too, it's, it actually lends itself, if you wanted to use a coaddle a as, a, as a villain in some way, these sort of expired edicts that don't make sense in the modern world. Whatever our sensibilities are could be a good way to, to use it. Because I'm always interested in, you know, like, one of the reasons I think the celestials don't get used is oftentimes, you know, we just, we are, we are the good guys fighting the bad guys. But I think, you know, and in, 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 you were just talking about, Dylan, you know, th- these... These creatures, celestials uh, and fiends, are are essentially, yeah, elementals, but uh, for for good or for e- representing good or for evil, you know, obviously a little more cognizant. But <clears throat> it is it is sort of like uh, interesting in that way that like th- that there is sort of baked into D and a lack of moral relativity. Right. Yeah. But I think that's not how most people play. And I think that like celestials are a really good opportunity to sort of test the bounds of what good actually means. I, I remember, you know, back in the, the AD&D days, nobody wanted to play with a lawful good paladin because you couldn't do anything bad and like they were always up on your shit. And so I feel like that's sort of a, a thing that you can kind of embrace in, in celestials. Is some, you know, lawful good can, can be interpreted in, in like a pretty like fascistic way.
1: The gods can be good or evil and anything past that is a manifestation of will an angel is lawful good because it came from a good god so it's edicts like it is not necessarily manifest good it's manifest will from a thing that is definitively good but that means once you've got that degree of separation you introduce flaws
2: also a detachment. Like, it may be lawful good, but a Coado is going to be largely detached from humanity. We're talking about how to make a Coado a villain earlier. What if there was a Coado who lived at the top of this mountain and every season sent down the rain, sent down the storms, made sure that water got to the valley because it knowed that the farmers down there needed it, right? Well, those that city's changed. It's moved. The flood patterns have completely been disrupted because they moved all the land and they moved all the plants and now they're just flooding it
1: the dwarves built a dam and now you can't get there and they just there's just a coadal sitting up there looking like huh That dam's really preventing the water from getting down. I guess they need way more water so it gets over the top of that dam.
2: (laughs) Right, exactly, because they don't know. It just got in the way. So and so they're sending this cascading torrent of flood down on them every time. I would change that because saying
1: they don't know
2: creates that sort
1: of like robotic ignorance that I think can work because that's the other thing you can always do with Celestial and especially a devil is arrogance is something that's looking down there and like, no, I have a perfect divine instruction that that field gets this much rain. I don't care that you put
2: put a dam there. Are you a God? <laughs> well, you don't get to tell me what to do. Right. Are you the God of dams? I don't think you are. I don't think you're the God of dams. I think he just
1: made one. When it turns out that you're the God of dams, you can build an angel of dams to come up and have a fucking conversation. Until then it rains. How would you change the quaddle in fifth edition?
3: Well, I think it goes back to what I said earlier about messing up celestials. And I think in general, the uh, celestials, angels, you know, quaddles, all of this sort of needs a, that celestials in general need an overhaul to, to figure out how people can use them in their games. Other than, as you said, like messengers or coming in to be a healer or, you know, a, divine guide for a thing. I think that like finding new and interesting ways to muddy up, um, and again, this is not directly quaddles, just the, the larger picture, but Celestials would be uh, probably my my the thing that I would want to see.
2: give them the ability to step back into the ethereal plane, because if you have a creature that is this good, that is designed not to be attacked, basically, this is mm-hmm. not a thing that is designed to be fought. It needs a way to escape. That thing should be able to jump into the ethereal realm and get away. This is an interesting
1: point because there's been a lot of creatures that are designed to not fight. This is also a creature that's designed to not kill because it has its bite attack has a poison effect. And that poison puts you to sleep will put you to sleep while the poison effect is active. And the poison is one saving throw will be poisoned for 24 hours until the poison ends. The target's unconscious. You're out for for a full day, and most things with an effect like that are written specifically such that you're like, oh, and if you make your save, then you're safe from this poison for a full day. Right. No, not this one. If it bites you and you don't go to sleep, it can try again until either you go to sleep or you
2: die. Go to sleep, go to sleep, go to sleep, go to
1: sleep. Just biting you <laughs> over and over. We're done, we're done, we're done, we're done. Which ties in fairly well to the other ability, which is Constrict, which is just
3: squeezing them while quietly whispering to them over and over again. Shh, go to sleep. Shh sh- go to sleep. <laughs> they do have the ability Dream, or the, uh, the spell Dream. So if you can make something go to sleep, you know, that is hostile to you and then enter its dream, so you can be like,
2: buddy, let's talk, <laughs> come on. Now that we're not swinging swords, what a great way to do it, too. Just like, nope, oh, yeah. sorry, bite, now we can talk.
3: You know, cause like some parties just, th- there there are some parties that are overly aggressive, especially if they see any kind of like non-humanoid monster and, uh, and that would be a good way to sort of, you know, br- bridge the gap.
4: My name is Alejandro Torres. Um, I have a Master's in Anthropology from the University of Illinois at Chicago. When I was there, I specialized in mortuary practices, um, and I studied specifically uh, the population genetics of the classic Maya. I was looking at questions about ethnicity and the formation of group identities and kinship. Um, I Basically, what I did was I used traits on bones, very discrete traits on bones to actually get at um, discrete heritable traits that you can actually find on these bones to answer questions about population genetics and how people are related to each other, how people are actually moving across the landscape. Um, And I did that all, again, in the classic Maya period context.
2: How would I more correctly pronounce Coatl?
4: It's pronounced Coatl. In Nawat, Um and that and that's my like Hispanicized Nahuatl. Like if I got if we actually got an indigenous Nawat speaker, they'd probably say it differently too. That TL sound tends to throw people off, but it, it's okay if you pronounce it as coatl. Um, with like almost like you're saying waddle, that's fine. But if, if you wanted it to be more accurate it'd be goat.
2: What is the story of the Goat?
4: These feathered serpents, they tend to hold a close association with rulership and fertility among various Mesoamerican cultures. Different archeologists argue that they are crucial figures who help to legitimize the royal lineage of a particular ruler. They'll want to use these feathered serpent icons to align themselves with the most influential political powers of the time, or the most powerful or influential ancestors of the time as well. So they're adopting these supernatural feathered serpents as their ancestors in part because they also see them depicted all over these abandoned Toltec sites because like archaeology is not just something that's done now, right? People in the past were also able to access these ruined areas and see the art for themselves. Basically, at places like Teotihuacan and different Toltec sites, you see feathered serpents plastered everywhere. And as a result, they continue to be an important symbol for people. But as that feathered serpent image continues to spread out across space and time, people start to adopt different meanings and associations with them. In Central Mexico, for example, the feathered serpents shed some of that association with water that we see earlier on in the archeological record, and they take on a stronger association with wind, the morning star, Venus, and the sun as well. And by the time of the Spanish conquest, their original older watery origins have taken a backseat to these newer meanings Um, But the feathered serpent continues to retain these watery associations among communities that have strong ties to bodies of water, such as like lakes, rivers, and water-filled sinkholes that we call cenotes. People, when they think of feathered serpents, are probably immediately going to think of the deity Quetzalcoatl or Quetzalcoatl, who has their origins in the Maya region. He takes on different uh, names, you hear Gucumats, Cucucan. I've also recently, just in preparing for this interview here, I found out that they all some Guatemalan Maya groups also call him Volca- Volcan, which is crazy to me because that just literally means volcano in Spanish. He has a very strong uh, association with the creation of people, especially with the Central Mexican creation myth of the Five Suns. He actually is one of the deities involved in the final sun. So in the final world, after people and the world have been created and destroyed four times before, people's bones are residing in the underworld.
2: The old gods gathered to share their sorrow at the absence of their creatures. We brought the earth and sky back together and made them whole again. But what good is it all without anyone to live there? who will worship us. We can't let things go on like this. But the humans were all dead, killed when the fourth sun fell in a torrent of rain, and the dead were far away, hidden deep in Miklan, the land of the dead. The lord and lady of that cold, dark, silent realm now kept their bones as treasures. Without the bones, there could be no more humans.
4: And Quetzalcoatl and his... One of his brother's uh, attempts to actually steal the bones from the Lord of Death.
2: Quetzalcoatl, his wise old face wreathed in a beard of brilliant feathers, said, I am Quetzalcoatl, the morning star. Every morning, I lead the sun back out of Miklan to be reborn with the dawn. I know the way out of the land of the dead and will guide us back home to Sweet And
4: so they travel to the underworld um, and he takes on his this aspect. It's an aspect of Quetzalcoatl where he dons this mask with his beak um, and it lets him control the wind much more powerfully and he's able to snake his way down through the under through the treacherous underworld and steal the bones of humanity so that people can be reborn and reshapen. But because of the fact that he is going down to steal the bones, they come back to the earth all in these different rough shapes and the different cracks and fractures. And so people are recreated once again, but they come in all different shapes and sizes. Feathered serpents are actually still remembered by indigenous communities today as well. In the Southern state of Chiapas in in Mexico, various ethnic Maya groups still talk about these supernatural creatures whose job it is to protect and purify water sources, because these are the water sources that these communities rely on for their survival. In Eastern Chiapas specifically, the Lacandón Maya at the town of Metzabac, they still tell stories of a giant aquatic creature who protects their water and makes sure that the lake never completely dries up during the dry season. In this particular community where I work, local people would tell me when the water level dries up just enough, when the the dry season is just bad enough, the water level will actually drop far enough down that you can actually get a glimpse of this ancient rock art. Of the water lily serpent, a specific variety of the feathered serpent that has these, uh, has these nice crests in on its head and on the back, on like the back third of its tail. You you see the water lily pad on on its forehead. It has a crest. It's also got like these fish, these like cool little spotted fish on the front and the back, just kind of like chomping down on parts of its like feathers and things like that. When the water level actually gets low enough. You can see th- this rock art, and it, it's rock art of these two water lily serpents actually facing each other. I think a lot of us, especially in the U.S. and in other places where we're not worried about our sources of drinking water, we're not worried about how clean our water is, whether or not we're going to get sick when we drink water. We could take away those lessons from the from the Cuadal because. That's kind of their job.
2: Do you think Coattles are monsters?
4: Oh, no, they are, they are not. For a lot of uh, indigenous groups, they are tied to, or they were tied to the creation myth for those people. They are responsible for the creation of humanity. So in a way they were intrinsically tied to the people who venerated them in their community. They were also tied to the landscape because remember again, they were uh, responsible for bringing water and protecting sources of water for the people. So they were not monsters at all for the people living today. We don't start to actually see Kuatles being thought of as monsters until by indigenous populations, specifically in Metzabach. Actually, I'm talking more specifically from my experience, having worked with the Lacandón Maya. They don't start thinking about serpents as dangerous creatures, monsters, until after they've been colonized and and after they've been evangelized. One of the elders at Metzabach, Jose Valenzuela, one of the community elders who had actually signed the treaties with the Mexican government, had told us about the stories of the serpents um, and how they were these protective beings. But then also on the flip side, once we got away from talking about specifically the protective creature of the lake and we just started talking about serpents in general, they were very dangerous, they were venomous, they only brought death, they were bringers of death. They were no longer bringers of life, water, or like wind or anything like that, uh, controllers of the weather. They were now just bringers of death. My colleague um, argued heavily that that had to have come from later colonization efforts, changing ideas behind the co-op.
2: and how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream.
3: So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts.
1: It has been a long trek. The Valley of Embers... It's not a pleasant place to walk through in the best of days. And there's that constant fear. Uh, there have been long rumors of a dragon that hunts in this territory. So every shadow, every cloud is a minor panic attack.
2: I imagine it'd be hard to fly in this ash and heat, too. We probably just spent a lot of time walking, which is not something Aarakocra enjoyed doing.
1: That's the thing. That's the bit that makes it painful, is knowing that dragon is out there. This is a place where you shouldn't fly. The thermals here, the updrafts you can catch from the sheer amount of heat, this should be glorious.
3: Yeah, it's like birds over a highway.
1: (laughs) Yeah. The only thing you would complain about
2: is if you get up there, the smoke and the ash would get into your feathers and you'd have to clean it. I do, I do imagine we do spend a lot of time preening. Like, they don't really talk about that in the Aarakocra book, but we've got to clean those feathers every day. Oh, it's, it's four hours of their long rest is spent (laughs)
3: cleaning themselves.
1: Yeah, they don't bring up the same rules as an elf. It's only
2: like four hours of sleep. I can only do a half watch, guys. I've got to preen. We know this.
3: And they're, they're actually really terrible traveling companions, because unless you just put like drape a, like a cloth over their head at night, they just squawk at indeterminate hours. It's really. Ah, really, really disrupting. <laughs> it's got one of those, like, little face masks. Yeah, exactly. Like fal- a falcon hood.
1: <laughs> Passing through the valley, you come to this massive tunnel leading deeper into the peaks of flame. You're close to the middle of Chult in a place that it's held holy by the Yuan-Ti. It's revered. They don't come here. They hold vigil over this land, but they don't get into the shadow of the mountain. They know the serpent deep down in there. She's waiting. And this is a place only for her. They warned you not to come here. Some of them tried to stop you. Yet here you are. Being generically bird folk, being an Aarakocra and an owl and you know, the idea of a tunnel is always a little off-putting. Nobody likes being closed in. So when the mouth of the cave is a 50-foot diameter, it's hard to decide if that's comforting or not.
2: As a scout, as an Aarakocra scout, this is a bit beyond my knowledge. I have good knowledge of the forest and nature and what I need to be able to survive and figure things out. But as far as a giant hole in the side of a mountain, that's beyond my knowledge. Maybe not for my friend, though.
3: Yeah, so uh, I sort of, you know, that that weird bird walk where they sort of half hop sort of over towards the, uh, the the wall of the cave and, and just and kind of look at it. The first thing
1: that you're sort of looking for, being as this is going directly into the side of a volcano is basically any signs of lava flow. you know looking for those sort of uh, igneous formations that you get as lava sort of cools and dries out not dries out. that's completely wrong. Jesus Christ, that's not how lava works. It ain't wet guys. It's not like the stone got dissolved and heated up.
2: Nice recovery, threw in some science there just so people would know that you know your shit. Good job. Yeah, it
1: it loses some of the effect when I'm throwing it in there to be like, hey, did you know I'm a moron? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so you're looking around for these little igneous formations, those giveaways of like lava flow, because that would be the first sign that this is a bad idea.
3: Well, only if it's an active volcano.
1: And you know, the smoke and the the sputtering at the top sort of (laughs) imply. Yeah. This is a D&D world. You don't put volcanoes that are inactive in a D&D world. Of course not. Everything in DD exists for plot purposes, and inactive volcanoes don't create
3: plots. Unless you're like going into the caldera for some reason, you know, because there's something in yeah. there. Yeah. There's always, there, you know, you, okay. Anyways. Yeah. We, we'll <laughs> talk later. The,
2: back to the rocks. Anytime a DM would describe a volcano as inactive, I would immediately be like, okay, for now. You didn't add for now, DM, but we know it's coming.
1: The thing that you notice when you're looking at like sort of deep features is the way this is sort of scarred up. It looks sanded, something hard and coarse but the places where the edges should be the places between those gouges are smoothed over whatever created this scraped it but it did it so long ago that you have to look for those features.
3: And so I'm gonna uh, have like a like a fancy you know kind of walking stiffs, uh stick staff thing, and I'm gonna tap the wall, and just sort of pretend like I'm listening to it. And I'm gonna look over at uh, Use, my my traveling
2: companion. I'm gonna say, "Do you hear that?" Use turns. He's a very typical like eagle kind of era akakra. His feathers are all very tan and white and yellow, and his big beaked head turns to you, and his large ember eyes narrow, and he listens, but he does not hear. He hears the cave, maybe some water, maybe some stones in the wind just beyond the entrance, but that is all that I hear. Use.
3: You, you will need to learn to listen to the stones, to many things that you as being of the air are not used to listening to. Your journeys will take you many places.
2: Yus listens to Sansei's words. Owlin have always been creatures of wisdom. We seek you out when there are questions we just don't have answers for. Listening to rocks is an odd thing for me, but I do remember flying past mountains, hearing the winds Whipped through the peaks, hearing the song of those stones. If those stones can sing, then maybe these stones can speak, but it's just very quiet and he really has to listen. So he pulls in his wings, closes his eyes and grows very quiet and tries to hear what it is you're telling him to hear.
1: I want you to give me uh, a perception roll, Aaramp.
2: Plus five. That is a two, that is a two plus five is seven.
1: Not a goddamn thing. You haven't fucking learned a. You bring along a guy specifically for wisdom and you haven't listened to a fucking word. (laughs) I'm listening,
2: (laughs) listening and absorbing are different.
3: Yeah, just doesn't, doesn't hear anything. Nothing, nothing, it's just no intake. And so I like, I'm going to look at him understanding this that he's just not hearing what I'm trying to tell him and that this has sort of been a repeated Trend throughout the entire journey, which may be why we've lost a couple people too. I don't know. I don't want to. I don't want to place blame on anyone, but it wasn't my
2: fault. Did you say it out loud? <laughs> 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 it starts around like, hey, that was personal. This <laughs> starting yeah. No, I wasn't Come saying on. that in character. That's yeah, just you yeah. know, d six psychic damage. Perhaps if I wasn't so, as we call it, pigeon headed, <laughs> I would have seen these things by now. Do you think a
1: pigeon is the bird equivalent of a bull? I think a pigeon is stubborn. Dumb and
2: stubborn. I'll give you that. But but strangely resilient. Well, that's the only reason. Like, If you're that dumb and stubborn, you should be dead. You're not because you're resilient. All right. Anyway, you continue down. There
1: is probably an hour's worth of tunnel. This is a point where you're starting to get lost not because you don't know where you're going your sense of direction is phenomenal but you know how long an hour like what distance an hour covers from the air walking down and into a tunnel and trying to track where you are on the surface you don't know you you could be past the mountains it feels like you should be past the mountains but if that were the case you probably should have caught
2: fire. Without the air passing over our feathers, without the room, without the light, it's really hard for us to judge anything down here, I'd imagine. That's the thing. The air does pass over your feathers. It's bad.
1: It smells acrid. It's hot. It's just anything that managed to get through the tunnels that came down this deep It's getting heated and it's getting dragged up the tunnel. It is fleeing just like everything else. Nothing seems to come down here. And the only
2: thing that is stone and air and the air is trying to leave. I can't imagine Yus would pick up on any of that, but Sansei might. But I feel like Sansei already knows that this is a bad idea.
3: (laughs) Yeah, I think my, my feathers are definitely ruffled.
2: The owl head just just keeps, ro- just keeps yeah, rotating. Yeah. It. <laughs> <laughs>
3: uh, but I'm gonna, you know, as we're as we're sort of uh, uh, walking walking down the tunnel, um, and starting to just sort of feel this, you know, passing through my feathers. I'm gonna look over to Use and and say, "We've come a long way, and you sacrificed much, but are you prepared for what we find below?"
2: takes a few steps quietly, thinking about those words, thinking about the village that he lost, thinking about everything that's been taken from him recently. And he nods and he realizes he's ready for anything because there's nothing else left for him, just this path forward. I assure you, I am ready.
1: That is some phrasing that you know is concerning. There's a simple word choice. There are people who see a path ahead and a path forward. (laughs) There's a choice that's already been made.
3: Knowing sort of what is is in his Uh, rapidly beating Birdheart, I sort of look again over to him and say, Why are you doing this? And I, I mean, I know why, but before we descend much further, I think you should really hear it for yourself again, why you've brought us all this way.
2: Because I was given a great responsibility, and I failed.
3: You were a scout, not a warrior.
2: One has scouts, so they do not need warriors. We are the ones that keep the threats out of the village, away from our trees. Once warriors are employed, we have failed. And he just keeps staring down this hall. He's now looking like into the darkness, but through the darkness, like he's got that thousand mile stare. There's something at the end of this tunnel and he believes it's his salvation and he just can't take his eyes away from it.
3: To undo things, we shall see what awaits us at the bottom of the tunnel.
2: We shall, my friend,
3: together.
1: You continue down for time, the references are gone. There's not light. There's not like the temperature doesn't change. You can't feel, you can't can't hear as the animals shift as you go from like those quiet prowling predators to just crickets. But eventually you hit a point. The tunnel doesn't change. There isn't an opening, there isn't a room. There's a massive wall of iron. The only thing that calls it out is a door. There are two things. There's a massive seam up the middle where it's clearly two pieces pressed against each other firmly. And then there's a feeling. A feeling of past. Just that wall you look at it and you can feel it something back there is dragging you forward there is something on the other side of this wall and every time you try to form the word wall in your head it just gets overwritten it is not your thought it is an item being struck from the record and replaced Meanwhile, Carlos, in Sanse's head, you knew. You knew already what it was. And instead of that feeling of something being struck and replaced, it's the low hum. Just agreement. When you think of what might be past that, of the danger it could hold, of what it could do, there's just almost a chuckle. Yes. There's one irregularity. There's one thing throwing you off on all of this. One thing that stops you from thinking, ah, sliding door. Just hands up, push to either side. It'll slide open. That's a rock. Big fucking rock in the middle of the door. Not a gem. Not a stone. It is dark. Not quite black. It's not You know, it's not obsidian. It is stone, but it is heavy. There's a weight to it. It is probably 15 feet up and it's maybe eight inches
2: across. It's like a it's like a cantaloupe.
3: Oh, it's like one of those one of those watermelons grown in a square Cool, so now we have a frame of reference. It's a square watermelon sized rock. <laughs> it almost looks like it's basically placed up
1: there, holding the two chunks together, and that weight just like I said, around this is an uncomfortable feeling. Imagine our age feeling something for the first time. Right. Like a seventh
2: sense just popped up, right? It isn't or a sixth real. sense, I should be just popped up. I know
1: I've experienced, you know life in general, I know all of the things I can feel. So whatever this is, it, it's not right, it's
2: it's fake, it's not. It's just some unsettling thing. Yeah. All right, well, I'm out of my depths, quite literally. But I would say that I have listened to my friend Sansei, maybe not as much as I should have, but I have heard some things, and they did tell me to listen and to hear more. And so that's what I do. I walk up to the door, I cut my Feathered hand, and I place my ear to it, and I listen. Oh, that's okay. Um, I'm gonna have you make a wisdom save. Wisdom save plus two, four plus two is six. My rolls, yeah, are a
1: change. rectangular cantaloupe. Thanks, for it's that like one.
2: cantaloupe, son. <laughs> yes, yeah, it's, it's like a square watermelon. Don't be a jerk, Dylan. <laughs> Aram, tell me about the last nightmare you had. Oh, it's the same nightmare. It's the same nightmare every single time. He's on the forest floor. He's looking up at the treetop canopies and homes of his people, and they are burning, and he can hear screams. But he goes to fly and he can't. His wings are burned. He's just trapped there on the ground, staring up, helpless, as his whole village suffers.
1: So you're down on the ground, trying, like aching, just, you know, the wings are gone, but all the muscles are pulling. You are trying to make those gestures and it's just nothing. You can't make any progress. Sansei, Yus has flown headfirst into the ceiling.
2: Like a moth just trapped against the ceiling.
3: Yeah, so I'm gonna quickly, you know, spread my wings out, and as as the sort of the owl wings spread, you can see the sort of uh, uh the umbra of them is is going down, like radiating from green to white to red. And uh, he flaps his wings and he uh, he shoots up towards um, uh, use and just puts a gentle hand on him before he tries anything like aggressive, just to see if he can be like friend. Are you are you okay? And immediately you snap out of it, like you're waking up from a dream. And I uh, I grab him. Uh, quickly, like by the collar of his, his armor as he's starting to fall, I assume. Right, I, like yeah. plummet 10 feet.
2: Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I imagine the startle reflex for birds is quick, right? Yeah. You start yeah, flapping yeah. quickly, but I drop like fif- like 15 feet. Oh God. And then quickly settle back down. I saw my people. I saw all of them. I could, I could hear them, Sansei. I could hear them distinctly. Whatever is behind this door, it can fix everything. It can undo everything. Yes, it can can undo everything. It can put it right. Are are you sure? He looks back at the door and he looks to his friend and just the smallest bit of him is a little worried, but he shoves it down. He shoves it way down because it's overwhelmed by this feeling of loss and desperation and desperation, and right up until this point, he wasn't sure, but as soon as he heard their voices and he heard them behind the door, behind it, he's convinced this is the answer to everything.
3: Yus, we have come a long way together. You, You sought my help when there was nothing left for you. And I agreed to see this journey through to the end. But I must ask you again,
2: are you prepared to undo everything? He gets a little frustrated at that. Of course I am. What have I gained? Nothing. I have nothing. Everything has been taken. Everything has been burned. Of course I will reverse it. Of course I will. You have yourself?
3: You have the memories of those you left behind. You have a culture to preserve. If you are the lone caretaker.
2: I'm a scout, not a healer or a leader or a teller of tales or a singer of songs. I am not my culture. I am a fragment. I am one feather from the wing. I have to do this, Sansei. I'm nothing without them.
3: I do not believe that you could have made it this far if you were nothing, with or without my help. What lies behind that door is
2: not the answer you're looking for, it is just more questions. Then I will answer those questions. This is the door. This is the path forward. We were brought here for a reason. This has to be true.
3: I mean, ultimately, the choice is yours. As I said, I would see this journey through to the end. Leaving this behind is only a lost cause, only, only makes this a lost cause if you see it that way. Th- there is a path ahead, but I do not believe it is behind this door.
2: Put out a hand, put the hand straight to the door, just slap it down. Can I feel anything? You can feel two things.
1: Power and
2: death. Which is exactly what I would expect to feel in this situation. The power that can bring them back from that death. And I just quickly pull my hand away. It's there. I can hear them, Sansei. They're calling out to me. I have to open this door, and I would fly up to the rock.
3: I'm going to stay, stay down on the ground, but I'm, I'm going to look up at my friend and say, are you sure you're not hearing what you want to hear? That whatever's behind that door knows what's in your heart, and is telling you exactly what it wants,
2: which is for you to open that door. That little bit of doubt grows for a moment. It just swells in his mind and he just clamps it right back down. And he looks at you and he just shakes his head. Then we shall find a point of bargaining. And he slams his claws into that rock and grips it tightly.
1: And the moment you grab into it, it's like lightning. You grip and you squeeze as hard as you can, and then you squeeze harder, not willingly, as energy just courses into your claw and squeezes every muscle to the point where you think bones will break, and you see cracks start to form, and the voice, the same one that chuckled, the thing that keeps reminding you, not wall, door, tells you exactly what you know, We
2: will strike the record clean. It will all be undone. And
1: we will begin anew. And your eyes go from a wide flip to just a little flash of just direct snake eye. And that stone cracks under your grip. (laughs) It shatters, and you're left holding this bar, an iron rod. There are two little hooks on either side that this bar kind of held between. And the moment that stone is shattered, you can just lift it up out of the slot and unlock the door.
3: So as I see the stone shatter, I'm going to sort of uh, shake my wings and point my my stick up at him, and I'm going to cast Hold Person. All right. Make that wisdom safe. DC 14. 2 plus
1: 9. 11. You are going to take a d6 of falling damage.
3: <laughs> Thud. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and I'm going to release the spell uh, after that.
1: So yeah, you're going to take 2 points of bludgeoning damage. 2 points of bludgeoning damage. Ow! And I just kind of look at you, just stunned. That bar is still in place. The stone had shattered, and the moment it broke, that was when the spell went off. What are you doing, Sanse? We're so close!
3: We are close, but this is not the choice that you should be making here. I have tried to impart lessons onto you to… to guide you in such a way that you would… Make the right choice for the good of all, not just for the good of
2: yourself and those you care about. This is my world, Sansei. It is the entire village.
3: There is a whole world out there. You have not flown but a day's journey from your roost.
2: What do you know of the world? I know that we sought nothing from this world, asked nothing from this world. And yet they sought us out and destroyed us." And he's kind of circling around you now, there's like 10 feet away, and he's kind of walking carefully. He's got one wing open, and his feathers are reaching towards his crossbow. I know everything I need to know about the outside world, Sansei. I know that they are killers, and destroyers, and if they had found us earlier, they would have wiped us out then, and if I gave them a single inch, they would come from my throat too. That's what I know.
3: But there are also those who create things of great beauty, who love deeply. There is a whole sublime half to the abysmal that you refuse to see, and you would sacrifice all of that for ultimately nothing because what you seek to undo, those things we wish for, don't often appear in the way that we
2: anticipate or would like. Your words are riddles, and I am tired of them. And I would just leap into the air again and go for that rock. It's all about getting that rock and getting out of this tunnel.
3: I'm gonna try and, uh, just uh, pursue after him.
2: Then I'm going to have you guys roll for initiative, initiative plus three. Eight plus three is 11. I cannot roll past 10, apparently.
3: This is text.
2: Uh, 14.
3: As, uh, I like zip past you, um, flying up, you watch as like the wings flap. And as there's like a flutter of owl feathers as my body unfurls into the, like the snake form. And I just sort of coil up uh, directly on top of the, uh, um, the thing. Like most of my body is literally just like on top of the, uh, the, uh, the rock Well, the wings are just like flying and you just see the, like the snake, the large snake head looking down at you. I'm going to say, you, you do, do not, not want to do this.
2: My character must know what a quatle is, or at least I've heard of them. They, they must have some, yeah right? Significant or even that just seeing a winged serpent, I would fly back, I would fly backward, but I'm hovering there. Do I know what a co is? That's gonna, everything I do next is gonna determine, it's gonna hinge on that. I'm gonna call this a religion check. Natural 20.
3: (laughs) (laughs) You know, those history checks, or those religion checks, so rare.
2: I had a grandmother. I had this old wizened grandmother eagle who would collect us all in her nest and tell us old stories. And the Coatl was my favorite. It was my favorite story. This is something that was just in my grandmother's dreams. This was never real. And now it's here in front of me. It was a story about redemption. It was the same
1: source as the Yuan-Ti, these creatures that have been enemies for years that come after you that are trying to stop you from scouting. And then there are some that were blessed with feathers and wings, snakes that could fly, allies, just creatures of benevolence and truth, all in opposition to the Night Serpent. It is a creature of nightmares.
2: A liar. A liar who would show me this.
1: And he goes to ready his a crossbow. Carlos, I'm willing to give you the transformation as just sort of like a free, like, while you're moving thing. Like that's, it's just cooler that way. Okay. So do not treat that as your action.
3: The scales sort of um flex on the body and you watch as this sort of like uh, dust sort of shimmers out and, and covers the body as I cast Sanctuary. You do not want to fight me, friend. This will not end well for you.
1: Sanctuary is actually a bonus action if you want to do anything else as well.
3: Uh, No, I'm, I'm good. I mean, I'm I'm trying not to, you know, I'm trying one last time to not have to fight him in this situation. You know,
1: I just got to give you the options. Oh,
3: no, for sure. For sure.
1: In that case,
2: Aram, he fires an arrow. Oh, you son of a bitch.
1: Make a wisdom save. 13 plus
2: 2 is 15. Uh, 14 is my DC. Jules oh, so. oh, just got it. Crossbow snaps up in an instant. Boy, is he fast with it and fires a bolt at you that's a little larger than a bolt you'd normally see coming. And it expands into a net and then just right around you. Okay. A larger, smaller creature hit with a net is restrained until it is freed. A net has no effect on creatures that are formless or creatures that are huge or larger. A creature can use its action to make a DC 10 strength check, freeing itself or another creature within its reach. So this shouldn't be hard for you.
3: Yeah, 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 no, but it probably does make me collapse to the ground, right?
2: Yeah, it stands to reason. Ties up your wings, even for that split second. You're going to take a D6.
1: Three points of bludgeoning damage. (laughs) We both took falling damage. Unlike Marvel, Dylan pays attention to falling damage. This net unfurls, it catches, and your wings tangle. Like every time you try to move, the problem with a net being a snake is like when you move and you bend, you just go into one of the holes a little bit and then you start dragging it around. Every motion you take moves the net more and tangles it more. Around that voice at the back of your head tells you, they're here.
2: They're on this side with me. And after I fire that arrow, my move action is to go straight to the stone. This thing is lodged
1: in there. Years. Millennia. It's not going to be a trivial thing. It's going to take a pull. So I want you to make me a strength check. I can't on this
2: round. I have to wait till my next round. That's fair. All right, Carlos.
3: All right, well, I'm going to... Um take my, uh, action, I guess, and, and just, like, burst out, uh, of the, uh, the netting. So I got a 12. Oh, close! Just barely. <laughs> and then I'm gonna fly back up to, to you, but that's my, that's my action, I assume, right? Yes. Freeing myself from the net is my action. All right, yeah, so I'm just gonna fly back up and, and just again, and, and I'm gonna say, "Use, I plead with you, what you seek is not forward. This door,
2: he's got his claws in the stone. His wings are going, your wings are going, we're like a foot apart, staring directly into each other's eyes. You say opening this door, taking this power, will unleash chaos? Let them all know how I've suffered. And just digs his claws into that stone. Strength roll, yep. Well, I'm not unstrong. 16 plus four is 20. And immediately, there's just this
1: thud, a slam as if something on the far side of the door is trying to force it open. This is not a door that opens like that, but the door shakes and that little sliver, that tiny divide just widens
2: by the barest increment. As I'm holding this rock for a moment, I think in my head to that voice that I heard, what do I do with it? You wait. I'll show you what you need to do. Then he like flies back a few feet with his movement and just hovers there, holding the rock.
1: While you look, you see these flashes of purple light and darkness. These light, like not not quite screams, calls, yells. And flashes of darkness. Iridescent black scales moving on the far side. And so many more people who want to come home.
2: I can save so many people. This is why I'm here. And he would just clutch the stone tighter.
1: You can see on the far side, this huge serpent basically slamming in and brushing against the doors over and over again, just trying to force it wider and wider. This abides by narrative logic in that, if you put the stone back, it seals the door. You don't have to really pull it shut. It's a big magic door with a magic rock that seals the magic snake back into the death plane.
3: I'm going to, uh, wrap myself around you, uh, and drag you, try to drag you back down to the ground. So I'm going to make a attack, uh, I assume a 24 hits. Oh, yeah. It's twice over. So you take 7 bludgeoning damage, and, uh, you're grappled and restrained. Uh, and so I'm going to just pull you down to the, the floor of the cave.
1: Aram, you are stuck. Your escape DC is 15, for the record.
3: I cannot be the one to return that stone to the place that it belongs, but you can. You can make that choice.
1: It's true. He doesn't have hands.
3: (laughs) I can hold it in my mouth, but it's awkward. It's really good for you. It will uh, so take me a whole action to do that. Do, does it look like we have that kind of
2: time? Just, just put it back. Just put so, it back. So I've, I've got the stone, I'm all wrapped up, but I'm still clutching this stone. Nothing has convinced me that this still isn't the reason to do this or that yes, sure, maybe there's a sacrifice, but it'll still work. And in my head, that's all I care about. So I'm going to fight. I'm going to try and break free. We're gonna call it athletics because D and D is always
1: weird about like it would be athletics if it were contested, but since it's a DC to do the escape, I don't know if it's supposed to just be the raw strength.
3: It's it, it's athletics or uh, acrobatics for defending. I think
2: natural one doesn't matter. We do, <laughs> would have this conversation. Excellent. There's something about holding this stone. I can hold the stone, or I can have my strength, and holding the stone takes all of my strength, and I just can't break free like, look down at him with, like, my golden
3: snake eyes, and I'm going to say, we're going to try this one last time, and I'm going to bite him.
1: Okay. You have advantage on this roll because he's restrained.
3: Okay, well, that's going to be a 23 to hit. Might. So you take uh, 8 piercing damage, and you have to roll a constitution save
2: uh, or be poisoned and fall asleep. Constitution save. All right, that is going to be a 1 plus 14. So sorry, sorry, I rolled a 14. Sorry. That is a 14 plus 1.
3: Okay, well, it's a DC 13, so you just get bit and you are not poisoned. <laughs> and I'm just like, you know, if a if a, a snake can like huff in frustration, that's what I, I guess I hiss in frustration. Blow your little cheeks out. <laughs> I'm just, I'm just like, you just need
2: to go to sleep. <laughs> And I can't move towards. Let's like just keep biting me. Yeah. <laughs> so that's my turn. Right. I'm gonna I fail him. eventually. There, a six. I failed. Okay. Uh,
3: well, I mean, yeah. you could try to get free again if you want. But uh, I could, but or I, I can just keep, just said, keep like, biting you.
2: He's just so focused on the rock and so confused at what is happening. I would just think you bit him, and then you guys just looked at each other because nothing happened, and they just bit him again. Yeah. <laughs>
3: okay. Uh, so <laughs> as soon as he's unconscious, yeah, uh, I'm gonna release him and sort of let him down on the ground. And then I'm going to sort of lean my I'm going to I'm going to look at the door, sort of get a rough estimate of how much time I got here. (laughs) Well,
1: given the size, you can see those scales. And once they're blown up to the size they are, they are always like shark scales. They have enough texture that you can see like that is what touched every wall of this cavern. This is what in the time before time drug itself through this hole and tore it open.
3: You know, I don't know if snakes sweat, but uh, I'm going to touch my forehead to uh, uses and I'm going to cast Dream.
1: Beautiful. Okay.
2: Dream, I think not a lot of people cast Dream, let me just read this one Never, Never cast this spell before. (laughs) This spell shapes a creature's dreams. Choose a creature known to you as the target of the spell. Creatures that don't sleep, such as elves, can't be contacted by this spell. If the target is asleep, the messenger appears in the target's dreams and can converse with the target as long as it remains asleep. The messenger can also shape the environment of the dream, creating landscapes, objects, and other images. The messenger can emerge from the trance at any time, ending the effect of the spell early. The target recalls the dream perfectly upon waking. And so I can shape the environment of the dream, right? This is your holodeck now, Carlos, you can do whatever you want. (laughs) Yes, this is
1: my
3: holodeck. So
1: you don't know about telling stories involving a holodeck.
3: (laughs) We're going to appear far above his ruined village, like our wings flapping. Uh, And I'm going to appear as uh, the owl. But I want to show him what the world is 10 years in the future after he opens this door.
2: This is our, it's a wonderful life.
3: Yeah, this is your uh, ghost of Christmas future moment right here.
1: Nature is starting to reclaim things. The ashes are like long soaked into the earth. Trees are starting to sprout. And as you look past the edges of your village, you can see that that's true everywhere. You can see not a single fully grown tree. When you take a look down at the ground, you can see scarring. Something has torn up the ground. It's familiar as if something wrapped around the dirt and just... Squeezed a little.
2: But it's been returned to nature. Undone.
3: Everything
0: will be undone. undone.
3: It will be born anew through the view of the Night Serpent, something that none of us
2: should hope comes to pass. There's just the sadness that washes over him, just this deep, deep sadness when he realizes what this is and what's happened. Like he's walking through the forest and he's running his hands over these trees that has held his home and he's looking up at them and he can he can hear their laughter and he can hear their their whispers, but he knows they're not there. They're just not there anymore. And he turns back to his friend with tears in his eyes, and just this broken look. His wings are sagging. His chest is heavy. What have I done?
3: Nothing that cannot be undone. If you act quickly.
2: There was never any choice to make, my friend. Only the path forward. And he would try and reach up through the dream, like reaching up, pushing this rock out. He's trying to push out and towards the door. And so with that, I'm going to release him from the dream. He'd wake up, he'd see the door, it's like kind of cracked open now, probably one big huge serpent eye, maybe a little tongue once in a while. I will do this thing, because it is right. But my path is still forward, because that's where they are.
1: And a man, an arm reaching through. Every time it hits the ground, it's someone trying to crawl like along the ground. They've squeezed their torso through and the arm is starting to slam, and every time it does, the dirt and the rocks on the ground do not budge. It fights for purchase and it tries to drag itself through. Just this manic expression as it looks up and just keeps repeating over, I said I would come back. I promised.
2: I came back. I said I would get back to you. I can't be good. So I'd <laughs> fly, I would fly the stone up to the hole and I would look at it and I'd hesitate just for a second. I would turn and look back at my friend. Are you the owl now or are you the quadril? No, I'm still the serpent. Right. He would look at you and he would nod and he would slam the rock into the door, but he'd try to get through the door immediately afterwards. He wants in. If that's where his people are, then that's no, no matter what has befallen them, that's where he's going.
3: And and whatever the instinctual equivalent from where I'm standing, but of, you know, a mom putting their arm in front of a kid in, in the car, even though yeah. I know I can't reach him, just the sort of reaching out, but whatever this winged snake equivalent of that is, I do.
1: You slam this no. thing into the wall and it immediately elongates. It gets long enough to grab either side to slip into those latches and to start pulling forward and then i just want you to make an acrobatics check
2: all right come on 18 plus 3 is 21 there is a scream a
1: shriek in both of your minds it is loud and it blacks out the world Sansay, you come to to a sealed door and just this green, transparent arm fading into ether. And you're left alone.
2: One single tan feather falling to the ground. Not even. <laughs> Not even that! <laughs> Not even, no trace of me. I'm just gone.
1: The arm fades back into the fugue plane, and you're left in this cave, staring down the door that holds the world serpent at bay, alone.
3: So I'm gonna, you know, do the sort of, a uh, 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 snake equivalent of slump, and I'm gonna slump just back into the, the owl in form. I'm so tired of bringing people here. This is really just... And I'm going to like, kind of look up at the sky and say, the worst fucking mandate.
2: <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. Perfect.
1: Thank you for joining us for a DM deep dive into the quaddle.
2: We were also joined this episode by Alejandro Torres, an archeologist, DM, and writer from Chicago. Alejandro is writing his own Maya-themed world setting and planning a podcast to discuss Mesoamerican representation and celebrate Latinx indigenous craters in the TTRPG space. He plays Milo the Halfling Fighter on the Ademo underscore AS and Morphos underscore XL Twitch channels every other Wednesday. He loves to chat about Maya archaeology, podcasting, and TTRPGs on Twitter at Tanal underscore Tekka. For more information
1: about us, notes for each episode, and ways you can help support the show, head over to KilleveryMonster.com.
2: If any of the ideas we've discussed in the show have sparked some of your own, tell us about it on Twitter at KEM Podcast. You'll find me at Aram Vartian and Dylan at DJ Mollenfont.
1: For ad free episodes, early releases, bonus episodes, print ready maps, my DMs notes, and Aram's character sheet for each encounter, head over to patreon.com slash kill every monster. You can also listen to ad-free episodes and bonus
2: content by subscribing to the show on Apple Podcasts. Our theme intro and many of the sound effects you hear in the show were created by BattleBards. Check them out at battlebards.com. This episode was produced by Aram Vardian and Dylan
1: Malenfant. Aram also did the editing. Carlos Cisco was our guest. You can find him on Twitter
2: at Carlos underscore Sisko. If you are like me and all that information just fell right out of your head, you can find everything you need at killeverymonster.com.
1: And we'll see you next time. For Kill, Kill Every, Every Monster. In our first run-through, in, when we did this episode with Carlos, we were trying to take a lot of care around the coatal. And this was something that was appropriated from indigenous, Central American, Mexican cultures. We wanted to take some extra care with that. I got a little bit of tunnel vision going on there. So when we talk about entering into the peaks of flame and that valley in the Valley of Ash, I invoked the UNT, And when I did that, I talked about them making ritual sacrifices and channeling power to their fell god under the volcano passing through the valley you came to a massive tunnel it's leading into the peaks of flame you are near the middle of chult coming into this place that you know is held holy by the yuan ti they don't come here it's that kind of holy But there are rumors. This is the thing. When they make a sacrifice, when they send out prayers, they're not sending it up. They're not sending it out. They send it here. This is where they send any energy, any effort that they direct towards their god. Now, I did that without thinking and immediately channeled stereotypes and tropes that were attached to the way that you know the conquistadors and spanish people talked about native peoples when they colonized the area i was feeding the exact same settler narrative back into our episode i just put it in a different place i didn't talk about it in the Quaddle. i brought in a new people to serve as a racist trope So yeah, we got called out for that when we posted the clip on TikTok. And I am hugely grateful. That's a risky move to go on social media and point out that someone is being racist. But hopefully, it comes across that we took it to heart. And we did our best to fix it. If I still manage to step in something, please fucking let me know. Because I don't want to do this kind of damage again. Trust me, you won't want to miss out on the fun and candid conversations we have here on Rachel Uncensored.
2: The ancient mountainous deserts to the south of Feyrun are the places where mortals first raised great temples and unlocked powerful secrets. A kingdom once fractured by infighting has been united under the iron claw of the red dragon Chasar. The Great Lizard's quest for immortality has become an all-consuming obsession. His need for worshippers has set him on a path against the old gods of these lands, and they will not go quietly. An unlikely cabal of deities has banded together to undermine Jazar and ensure that their temples remain protected and active. They've traced tendrils of fate to preferred timelines, then selected five mortals who had the best chance of bringing those futures to fruition. You will take on the role of one of these chosen, in Death to the Dragon King. Find out more about this Start Playing Games campaign and all of my other available games at aram.gay.